Good. Well, welcome to you all. Uh, Sunday School here as we continue our series, just looking at really truths of God pressed into life and uh, just wondering and examining and discussing how does this actually impact everything from our, our daily thinking to our daily living, our daily choices, our desires and all those things. So I'm looking forward to it. have been blessed, challenged, and encouraged myself in the midst of my study and having my role teach. And so... Um, Lord willing, he'll continue to work this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and ask that you would work it to uh, our good, our growth. Lord, that you would convict areas of sin or even just thoughtlessness. And that uh, as your children, Lord, your redeemed children who you have bought for yourself, that we would submit everything to you and be willing to be uh, excited even to be conformed more to the image of your Son and to have our lives conformed more to just the, the expression of your will and your word. And we ask that you would bring that about today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, reportedly, uh, 16 out of 38 of the parables regard and address uh, money and possessions. There are approximately 2,350 Bible verses that have to do with money, possessions, wealth, if you want to think of that as the overarching term. Anecdotally, around half of marriages will end in divorce, and a significant percentage of divorces cite financial issues as a significant reason for the conflict and divorce. And so money, possessions, wealth, they matter. And God knows it. And he addresses it. And this isn't going to be a class right here on biblical finances, okay? Um, This morning, though, we're going to be seeking to anchor ourselves with some overarching biblical principles that inform just macro-level responses to life and the wealth that we encounter in the midst of it. So as it has been our pattern so far, we're going to establish some kind of ground rule doctrines, truths, and then we're going to have those inform our practical life responses. So did you get a handout? If you don't have a handout, raise your hand, and Josh Rimes is going to hand them out. He didn't know that. Josh, can you go back and grab some of those handouts? Thanks, brother. Oh, Steve's got some too. Flag down Josh or Steve if you need a handout there. All right. On that handout, this, uh, most of these are going to be looking back even to what Myrl uh, taught last week. And you got a little, another dose of God's providence, God's sovereignty in the midst of the, the sermon in first service if you were there. But just a quick review here. Quick review because I got to keep moving, right? Number one, God is absolutely sovereign and works all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, This is getting hammered into us, and that's good because it is a biblical truth. We must remember that. All things, nothing escapes his will. God is good, okay, and it's important that we keep all these characteristics in balance and in synergy with one another. God loves the redeemed, Okay, but number four, we need to take a quick pause here and make sure we remember this. God is intimately acquainted with the smallest details of our lives. There's this idea of transcendence and imminence with God. 
And if you focus too much on his transcendence, that he's so great, so mighty, so far off, so removed, you can almost end up with a God who's just sort of way off in the distance and, and maybe, maybe sort of managing things from afar, and yet there's this really um, just, just uncrossable chasm between. But then there's the idea of imminence, that God is aware, God is involved, God is close and available to people. Okay, and Deuteronomy 8.4 is just a little bit of, a, um, little bit of a, a testimony even in the Old Testament. All right, when God reminds, well, Moses reminds the Israelites that, look, even in all your wanderings, not even your sandals wore out. And he's not making a commentary on the quality of sandal manufacturing in Israel at the time. What he's doing is he's reminding them that God cared about the small details, even their footwear while they were wandering around. Okay, so God is not just, you know, some, some power way off in the distance that's sort of disconnected and removed from us and our lives and, and, and the goings-ons and the concerns and the hardships. Instead, he's actually, uh, he, he's actually quite imminent. He's present and he's aware of us and our lives. Luke 12, verse 7 says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, as, as, as Jesus is explaining about how God knows even just the sparrows, and, and then he, he looks at his disciples and says, the hairs of your head are numbered. And that's not by, that's not by us. That's not by men, that's by God. That's how much God knows us. Uh, God knows us even more, more intimately and and. M- in, in the minutiae, in the details than our spouses do. I don't have a lot of hair to count, but my wife hasn't counted my hair. But God knows that kind of a detail about me and you. Okay, so he's intimately acquainted with the smallest details of our lives. Look at number five, God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility are biblically compatible. We've talked about this and how they they do. Neither one negates the other, and it's still an important thing to be aware of. As we've seen already, God's sovereignty, his providence often works through men's actions, and yet men are responsible for their actions. So the idea of, as we're going to talk about with with finances and and wealth, the idea of God's sovereignty then doesn't absolve us from our responsibility for our actions and our choices regarding money or wealth. And again, this isn't a class on financial principles, okay? but those are in the Bible, and so our responsibility is to be aware of them and then to seek to live according to them. Okay? And, and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are biblically compatible. They don't negate each other. In addition to those things, we need to add a couple of presuppositions here regarding God's mastery. Okay, God's mastery. And the first one there is this. God is actually the owner or master of all wealth. All of it. Okay, Look back in Job 41 verse 11 with me. Job 41, verse 11. This is, this is God rebuking Job and others for a, a wrong perspective of, of him. 
And part of what he asserts is this in Job 41.11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever or everything that is under the whole heaven is mine. All right? Everything under the whole, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Let's look at First Chronicles chapter 29. Okay. Uh, First Chronicles 29. This is actually a, a prayer. David is acknowledging certain characteristics of God in the midst of his prayer. First Chronicles 29, verse 11 and 12. David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. And then listen to verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and in it lies you, and and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. All right, so God is actually the owner and master over all of wealth. Two words that are most natural to humanity, and uh, we see it quite readily in the, um, in the small people that are in our families, the little, you know, one, two-year-olds, and often the first word is no, and then the second word is mine, right? Both of these are inappropriate words when aimed at God, Okay, but that second word, mine, is, is especially kind of hard to sense in ourselves unless we're very intentional. But the plain reality is that nothing is truly ours. In the sense of we actually have mastery and full possession over it. Nothing, because unless we're going to disagree with God when he says that everything is mine, we're like, uh, no, 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 not, not that, that's mine. I don't want to do that. Okay, but that's what God says, and so we need to make sure we have our our thinking right. The plain reality is that nothing is truly ours. It all belongs to God. He controls it. He owns it. He allocates it, and then he reallocates it as he sees fit. All right, the next idea about God's mastery is this. God, okay, this is really interesting. God bestows the ability to grow wealth and is then responsible for its effects, for the effects of even efforts to grow wealth. Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18, this is a really interesting um, warning here. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 to 18, this is, in, this is in, um, you know, in preparation for going into the promised land. And God has promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they've seen the produce. And they know that, that it's, a, it's a blessed land that will result in, in even just a financial and physical blessing and prosperity. And in Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 to 18, God warns them and he says, he tells them to remember that the Lord, you know, and to obey the Lord. And he warns them, he says, don't forget who I am and who you are before me. And he says in verse 17, otherwise you might say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. 
verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Okay, and then there's, I mean, there's multiple other passages. There's passages in Isaiah that talk about how, you know, you, you can't even speak or do anything and have it come to pass unless the Lord, right, actually makes it happen and allows it to happen. And so we see that God is the one who actually is, is the, the doer, the grower, the creator of even financial prosperity, financial growth, any of those types of things. And that kind of puts us in our place a little bit. Okay, Psalm 84, verse 11 This is by now becoming a, um, a familiar verse in our church, and yet it's good to be reminded of it. And it has bearing um, in a little bit of a tangential way in what we're talking about here. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. And then listen to this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So these ideas, then, that God is the one who creates Wealth, that God is the one who brings about the effects of any of those efforts, all right? And then that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It kind of runs contrary to the, our, our, our American pull-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstrap sort of mentality. You know, we talk a lot about this idea of a self-made man, don't we? There's no such thing, okay? There is no man who is anything that has not been allowed or affected by God. Okay, God is the one who gives the ability to grow wealth. And honestly, oftentimes, he gives that ability to the ungodly. And that's even one of the, one of the, the, the topics of one of the, of the Psalms. Is, Lord, I look, at the, I look at the ungodly and I see their ease and I see their prosperity and I see their wealth and why, why, why? But what we have to ask is, is that truly a blessing. So we often categorically think, well, of course, wealth is a blessing. But then the psalmist says, ah, I remember their end. I remember eternity that's at stake. Okay? But God is the one that gives the ability to grow wealth, and he's the one that's in control of the fruition or lack thereof. And again, that doesn't absolve us of the necessity to be wise, to listen to God's word, and to live out biblical principles of finances. Okay, but he's the one that either blesses or doesn't bless those efforts. Okay? And the interesting question regarding that Psalm 84 verse 11 verse of no good thing does he withhold. If you flip it on its head, then everything that God sees as good for us, he gives us. And so... If he withholds something, especially in, in this kind of the realm, let's, let's think promotions, let's, let's think raises, let's think gains, let's think um, budget, you know, whatever. If he withholds it, is it good for us? I would say no. Takes a little thinking to actually make sure our minds are there. But God says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. All right, and he says that within the realm of his mastery. So, as we keep all these fundamental presuppositions in mind, we have to ask ourselves what the resulting implications are. 
After all, again, the whole point of this class is we don't want to practically, okay, we don't want to practically deny what we mentally affirm. What we say, yes, Lord, you are, or yes, Lord, this is true, we then want to live out. And we want to respond accordingly. So we don't want to practically deny what we mentally affirm. And so here's a few resulting implications from the truths that God is the sovereign master over our financial situations. Letter A. If God is sovereign master over my finances, then I will not despair in times of perceived loss. Okay? If God is sovereign, and if he is master, then in times of perceived loss, I will not despair. And I say perceived loss because it seems to be the frequent truth that loss in one area is actually true and better gain in what is truly meaningful. Okay, think, of, think of Paul. He lost this, he lost this, but it was, it was to gain Christ. It was to gain what would last for eternity. He lost physical comfort. He lost um, relationships. He lost status. And yet, what did he gain? It was a gain of eternal impact. All right, and look with me at Luke 14, verse 33. This is even a little bit of a, of a prerequisite here. The willingness This one's really going to stick it to the health, wealth, and prosperity idea. Jesus says this in Luke 14, verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Okay? One of the prerequisites for discipleship is the willingness to lose everything. The willingness to to not have those benefits, to not have those, those treasures, as it were, like Job, right? I mean, think, think about Job, okay? We're just, we're just flipping back and forth. Go back, go back with me to Job. Job chapter 1. Starts out like this. Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Okay, here, here's what he had. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the east. And so then he goes and he talks, he then describes Job's godliness and Job's concern for his family. And then we, we see Satan come into the presence of the Lord and they have a little interaction there and Job is now tested in verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, put yourself in Job's shoes, okay? Like really truly, think of your family, think of your house, Think of your property, think of your pets. I, I don't know, not many of us have cattle and sheep, but maybe your dog, okay, and your hamster, cats. A messenger in verse 14 came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. 
And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, I mean, these things are just piling up. Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Blame as in assign wrongdoing. So Job knew who had provided his wealth. Job knew also who had the prerogative to take it away, to reallocate it, to do with it as he saw fit. And his response is instructive for us. And it's not just relegated to ancient times either. Hey, we're all familiar with John Wesley. Uh, one, one day, he, somebody came rushing up to him in a panic, and he said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, your, your house has just burned to the ground. And he thought about it, and he responds, and he says, No, the Lord's house burned to the ground. And then he said, That means one less responsibility for me. So he could then go focus on other things instead of caring for the house. But, but isn't that interesting? No, not my house, the Lord's house. Case in point, the stock market this past week. Okay, heinous. Possibly cause for despair if all your hope and stability are bound up in market gains. But the Lord gives gains and the Lord takes gains away, can we say, blessed be the name of the Lord who has given and who has taken away in those types of situations? Or do we think, oh, God, you missed that one. A, you're not in control. Or B, you're not really good. Or C, you're lying because you're withholding good things from you. Whew. Do you see how our responses can practically deny some serious truths that God asserts and that we often give very quick uh, assent to, but then with our lives, with our words, with our responses, we, we belie those truths? But we need to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, because our good, caring, sovereign God controls the ups and downs of the market and its impact on us. And so if we despair as market gains dissipate like smoke in the wind, then we practically deny some aspect of those foundational truths that are at the beginning of the handout. All right, letter B. If God is sovereign master, 
If he's sovereign and if he's master over my finances, then I will accept times of growth as a stewardship. Okay? Remember that word, mine? Okay? The word mine says, I am master. But the biblical truth is that God is master, and so which means that we need to then say, his. And that's the role of a steward. To manage resources on behalf of someone else who actually has possession of whatever it is that we're managing. And so what we see is that stewardship is the biblical perspective towards wealth. Stewardship, not ownership, is the biblical, our biblical perspective towards wealth. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. It's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Listen to the, the, the stewardship language here. Who owns, who works, and who receives? Verse 22. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. But see, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seeds, so you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Okay? This is about more than money, but it doesn't exclude money from its principles. God gives us wealth, money, and spiritual capacities and relational capacities and, and talent capacities in the sense of like abilities. Okay? All those things are stewardships of God that he has granted to us on his behalf. Okay? And there will be an accounting for those things in how we use them. Luke chapter 16. It's a really interesting, really interesting little story here, verses 1 to 13. I think we have time, so we'll read it. 
Now he also was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. You hear his strategic thinking. Verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Okay, here we start to get to the point. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Money, wealth is going to just fail. It's going to fade. It's going to burn. It's not going to make it into eternity. Okay? You can't take it with you, right? We're all familiar with that, but it's so true. That's what he's saying. Use, use your resources okay, to make friends so that when, when, when temporary resources like wealth fails, those friends will receive you into the eternal dwellings. We use, we steward our, our, our resources for eternal means. Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is right, unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. All right? So, stewardship is the biblical perspective that we need to have towards wealth. Really, just everything. Randy Alcorn says that stewardship isn't a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. Next thought here is that if God is sovereign master over my finances, I will accept times of growth as a stewardship. So, acknowledging that we're stewards, growth should then provoke the question, why did God bless me with this? What does he, what does he want me to do with this? Now, if you're like me, maybe it's just me, my, my I feel kind of bashful saying this, my gut response to some sort of windfall or, or, or a raise or, you know, parents, grandparents, you know how they are. We love them. And they bless you. And you're like, sweet! What can I get with this? What have I been waiting for or putting off or what can I go do or, you know... Is it a nice steak dinner or is it, you know computer accessory or whatever. Uh, 
But you see where that's oriented right away. That doesn't, that doesn't say, okay, God has given me this stewardship, so carefully thinking, what do I do with this? To honor the master of those things. Why did God bless me with this? And it takes a deliberate reining in of those thoughts of, ooh, what can I do or get with that? Okay, to actually stop and ask whether God is allowing us to consider deliberate stewardship of these things for shrewd gospel-expanding impact. All right, our use of resources both reflects and directs our heart's affections. This is crucial. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. Or if you want to turn there, that's great. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 24. Jesus says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You notice he doesn't say don't invest. He doesn't say don't store up. He just says store up rightly. Store up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then here's the point. Our use of resources both reflects and directs our heart's affections. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It reflects where our treasure is and our hearts and the connection there, but it also draws our heart's affections towards whatever we're putting our resources towards. Does that make sense? Then he says something very similar in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Larry Briquette says, When we acknowledge God's ownership, every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. No longer do we ask, Lord, what do you want me to do with my money? The question is restated. Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? And I'm not, I'm not advocating and I'm not saying that God advocates some sort of ascetic lifestyle where denial equals holiness. However, what I am trying to say is that we all, myself included, and this has been frankly kind of clobbering me over the head this past week, we all need to be more aware of our standing as stewards before God and aware that he is going to say, what are you doing with what I've entrusted you? And there are times where, where I look back and I say, ah, that was very selfish. And there are times where I look back and I say, Lord, thank you for guiding that decision because I see good impact from that. The principle is knowing our position before God and asking the right questions. Does that make sense? We're stewards. We don't own anything. But the master has given us resources to utilize in his graciousness and, and, and his kindness to us to utilize for our living and for his glory. Okay, and so with that in mind also... If God is sovereign, if he's master over my finances, then I will cultivate contentment regardless of my circumstances. Philippians 4, 
10 to 13. Very familiar with that. But let's look at it again. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. See, Paul's received a gift from the Philippians, and he's not saying, I don't need that. I don't need anything. I'm an ascetic, and I'm godly. He's not saying that at all. He's grateful for them and for what they've done. But then he says in verse 11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Listen to this. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me. (laughs) So he's grateful for their provision, but he also knows and has established the fact that his contentment, because he knows that God is sovereign and master and, and good and caring for him, his contentment is not contingent upon his circumstances. 1 Timothy 6 is also instructive in this. It says godliness, verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with those, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow, do we need to take heed. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Matthew 6, 24 to 34, again, talks about the Lord and his care and his provision and his work and his, his just really tender compassion and, and grace towards, towards his disciples. He tells them to look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers. And then he says in verse 31 of Matthew 6, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And this was all started, don't be anxious, don't be, don't be worried. Verse 34 says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, Responding with discontentment, all right, is the prideful equivalent of shaking our fist up at God and saying, we deserve more. And you got to note that this can be done by those experiencing both lack, I deserve more, or those who are experiencing plenty, I deserve more, right? It's, It's not based on circumstances, it's based on perspective, Responding with anxiety, as Matthew 6 sought to address, is the discontented equivalent of doubting God's goodness, doubting God's awareness, and doubting his faithful control. And that's Jesus' point. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Trust. Rest in God's character. 
None of this absolves us from our human responsibility of needing to understand and live according to the biblical principles of, of financial stewardship, etc., 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 okay? But as we truly trust in God's character and faithfulness, we will learn to respond in all situations with faith-filled contentment in what God, our sovereign master, has decided to entrust us with. No promotion, even a demotion. Consider what it looks like to respond with contentment. Incredible growth of resources. Severe drop in cumulative value. Consider what it means to respond in contentment and why. Room in the budget. Okay, we're, we're asking this now as a church even. Okay. Room in the budget when we were saying, oh, every penny squeezed consider what does it look like to respond with contentment and to understand our role as stewards of God's gifts and entrustments to us so hopefully these principles are helpful to think through and that they'll inform your your discussions and responses in the days ahead, both ups and downs. We just need to avoid being people who give lip service to God's sovereignty, His goodness, and His mastery, but then respond in areas of wealth, just like everybody else around us who has no concept of resting in God's character. So please, we need to help each other, right? We need to help each other as, as spouses, as roommates, as care group members, as friends. We need to help each other stop and consider how does God's sovereign mastery impact your financial stewardship and response in this and this type of area, whatever situation you may be going through. What I'm discovering as I listen to my role teach and as I make my own preparations to teach is that all, so, all of these biblical truths are so interconnected. We must maintain large-scale pictures in the midst of the minutia of life's happenings. It's very easy to have our, our, our vision narrow to just one little slice of what, what is happening in life and one slice of God's character, and, and so we lose then perspective and we lose picture. But God's sovereignty, His goodness, His imminence, His transcendence, His mercy, His holiness, and all of who He is play a role in everything that we experience and it provides insight, it provides balance, that fixating only on one truth loses. And so what's become crystallized in my head this past week, even thinking about this last week while Myra was teaching, is that, wow, and everything that we experience now must be held and balanced and held in perspective of what we are going to experience then. In eternity. And this is why next week we're going to be considering the implications of our true citizenship. Because apart from those truths, literally everything that we just discussed falls apart. <laughs> if the resurrection and truths of eternity aren't central in our thinking and in our reality and in, in our responses, then like Paul said, our faith is in vain. Just eat and drink because tomorrow you die. I see that too, and I'm on my last two sentences. <laughs> so, frankly, don't sweat thinking biblically about finances, about 
anything. Just live for earning every penny and spending it foolishly and selfishly if there's nothing to anticipate in eternity. But true awareness of our citizenship and the truths of eternity, that provides teeth. That provides weight to what we've just discussed and actual fuel then for the fire of living accordingly. So we'll consider those, some of those foundational truths and implications next week. Let's pray.